Hello and welcome to another episode of the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I am your host, Nate Swick, and boy, has a lot changed since the last time I talked to y'all. Two weeks ago, my biggest issue with COVID-19 was that the autocorrect on my phone would change it to Corvid. Now, merely 10 days later, my spring birding plans are completely upended. A festival I was scheduled to speak at was canceled. I can't imagine those that have not yet canceled are long for this world. It looks like it looks like 2020 is going to be something of a lost year in terms of opportunities for the birding world to get together. And to be honest, you know, that's that's okay. I, I know that a lot of people in our community skew older, skew into the higher risk groups. And I would ask you, if you are listening to this podcast, uh, to take all of this seriously and hunker down, you know, limit your group activities for the time being. I, I know I may not have just a ton of influence, but I hope that I can be as authoritative as possible in suggesting these plans of action. Though birding itself can be done reasonably under the guidelines issued by the World Health Organization and the Center for Disease Control. So so please continue to go birding and, and let's be honest, you know, time outside is good for you and you should you should keep doing it for as long as we are able to do so. Yeah, even if we end up on lockdown, uh, lots of people have feeders, you know, get some feeders, enjoy those. And in fact, I would certainly encourage birders to read the suggestions that we at the ABA put out, uh, that Ted Floyd put together on the ABA website. The link will be in the show notes. Basically, you know, it's common sense stuff. Be smart. Look out for each other. Look out for the older members of our community. Um, Think about the organizations you care about. Some of them are definitely going through some hard times because of this. Make plans for 2021 when hopefully, you know, the stuff clears out and uh, help those people in the tourism industry, those people at the bird festivals who have sadly had to put plans on hold this spring, you know, help them out in any way you can. Uh, like many of you, I am self-isolating with my family. My my kids are home from school, but you know, fortunately, a lot of what I do is remote anyway. Uh, ABA staff, we are we are well versed in working from home, and and everything I do, and everything that a lot of us do, from articles on the ABA website to this very podcast, will continue, barring any sort of illness that prevents it on my end or the end of anyone else. So you can look forward to that coming at you uninterrupted, you know, knock on wood, primaries crossed, etc. We've got some good ideas that we will hopefully be initiating in the next couple weeks to help you survive the quarantine, survive the isolation, to continue to be thinking about birds and birding even during this time when maybe we can't do as much of that as we want to do. Uh, We're going to do some live stuff on social media, maybe some virtual bird club meetings. So keep an eye on the ABA's social media feeds, Facebook and Twitter especially, for more on that. So take care, everybody. We'll all get through this, hopefully in time for a spectacular fall migration, and I'm really looking forward to spring of 2021. On the show today, hey, remember at the beginning of the year when I sent out a call for listeners to send me their cedar waxwing stories? Well, I I got a couple, and I'll start including those in the podcast this week because there's no better time to celebrate a bird known for hanging out in large flocks when we are definitively not allowed to do so. 
The first one comes from Dan Oberg of Lexington, Kentucky. Thank you so much for that, Dan. That will come at you at the end of the podcast. But first, we're getting closer to baby bird season, and and lots of birders know of the good work done by bird rehabilitation organizations. But how many know exactly what goes on behind the scenes? My ABA colleague, Ioana Seritan, who just happens to also work for one of the busiest bird rehabilitation centers on the continent, joins me to talk about it. And that is all after this week's Rare Birds. This is your Rare Bird Focus for the first half of March 2020. I wasn't sure whether to do this feature this time around because I don't want to encourage birders to chase rare birds if that might result in a cluster of birders in close contact. Uh, But in the end, most of these records are not super up to date. Most of them are a few days old. So I'll do it anyway until there is a super compelling reason not to. But even so, there's not a ton going on right now. Uh, Missouri had its second record of Mugol up near Kansas City. Uh, Vermont had what is likely its second record of Crested Caracara, the first in the Northeast since the big big eruption years of 2015 through 17. Uh, There was a great cormorant in Elbert, Georgia, which is pretty far south for that species in North America. And in Florida, a banana quit was seen in Leon County, in the panhandle, which is quite unusual for that species, uh, which while annual in Florida is known pretty much only from the southern part of the state. So it's pretty cool if for no other reason than you get to kind of have the novelty of seeing photos of a banana quit foraging in a redbud tree. That's about it for rarities in the ABA area for the period. Uh, please check out the Rare Bird Alert Hub on the ABA website. That is aba.org slash RBA for a post every Friday that rounds up all the rarity landscape. You can also find lots of rare birds at the ABA's Rare Bird Alert Facebook group. That is facebook.com slash groups slash ABA Rare or our Twitter rarity feed at ABA Bird Alert. The world of bird rehabilitation is a unique aspect of the way that people interact with birds and those that do the dirty work of helping wild birds get back to normal following scrapes with frequently human things. Uh, Get an up-close and personal look at birds that many of us who just look at them through binoculars and scopes don't get. My ABA colleague, Ioana Seritan, does just that. Not only is she an associate editor of Birding Magazine, but she's currently a wildlife rehabilitation technician at the International Bird Rescue in California's Bay Area. So let's talk about bird rehab, hows and whys. Uh, welcome, Ioana. Thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. So so how long have you worked at, at International Bird Rescue and how did you sort of start there? Yeah, so I've been with International Bird Rescue about two years. I found out about uh, the organization when I was in college. I was looking for something to do on one of my summers. And I found out that they have an internship program, uh, which would have been perfect. And I was super excited. I applied. I had no idea if I would get it or not, but I actually got it. Oh, that's great. Uh, Yeah, and it was super exciting. At that time, the interns actually lived at the center. Oh, wow. Yeah, so for three months, I lived at the center in Fairfield, California, and worked a full week, uh, which for us is four 10-hour days. And I just absolutely fell in love with it. And then I returned to college, finished getting my degree. I worked another job in the meantime. And then when I left that job, I was really hoping I could work at International Bird Rescue as staff. Mm-hmm. And it ended up working out. Oh, um, that's great. Yeah. I started part-time and then I began full-time about a year ago. So it's been about two years total. Yeah. 
Is that sort of a typical route to getting a job like that? A lot of young birders out there like really want to work in birds in some yeah. capacity, right? Yeah. And so the the intern to part-time to full-time route seems like a very common yeah. way to get in at a place like that. Yes. Yeah. So wildlife rehabilitation is kind of an atypical field in general. Sure. So yeah. <laughs> it's hard to say that there's any one particular typical way to get a job. Uh -huh. um, but yes, most of the people who I work with, most of the people who I interact with who have paid jobs as rehabilitators start as interns, start as volunteers, and then maybe they get a part-time job or maybe they get a seasonal job. You know, they prove that they're willing to do the hard work and work the mm -hmm. long hours, and then maybe they get more opportunities down the road. So it's definitely very common to start as a volunteer and work your way up. Yeah. And how have your responsibilities changed as a volunteer to a, a full-time employee? Have you, are you doing, obviously you're doing more, yeah. but um, that, like what aspects of your job are more, more or less the same? Like how did volunteering prepare you? That's a really good question. So I think one of the things that really surprised me about wildlife rehab is how much of it is interaction with other people, mm -hmm. whether it's interaction with my teammates on any given day or interaction with members of the public. When I started, I was like, well, I just want to be around birds all the time. So <laughs> right, right, this, right. this way, I'll just hang out with birds. But there's really a lot of people stuff that happens. Mm -hmm. So I think starting as a volunteer really helps because you get an appreciation for how hard the work is, how much cleaning there is to do, how much yeah. food prep there is to do, how much just labor goes into every single day. Yeah, I imagine so. so. Yes, it's very difficult. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it's yeah. like part zookeeper, part, yeah. you know, medical technician, part yeah. outreach person. It seems like you have to wear a lot of hats. Yes. Yeah. So then when I became staff, I really had an appreciation for how hard the volunteers were working. And it right. really helps yeah. to smooth that relationship because you can say, look, I know how hard it is to do this. I know mm -hmm. I'm asking you to do something difficult, but it has to happen for these and, you know, such and such reasons. Um, and this is the value that your work has. So I think that really helps to deepen the relationship between staff and volunteers. Absolutely. So uh, how many volunteers do you typically have at, at IBR at any given time? So every day is different. Um, it really depends, which I know is kind of right. a cop-out answer. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, it's true too. <laughs> yeah, so it really depends on the scenario. Um, during the summer, we have a lot of abandoned and orphaned birds. Mm -hmm. So we could have, you know, 200, 300 birds in house at any given time. And then in the winter, if we have just 20 birds in house, that's a lot less work. So we might need way fewer volunteers during the winter than we do mm -hmm. during the summer. Um, but we always try to make sure that we have a core team of volunteers there so that everyone is fully trained and everyone is ready you know, when baby season hits, you have right, to kind right. of know your way around first. So there's a lot of variation. Yeah. So so what kind of species do you typically work with? What are the most common birds that require rehabilitation at, at IBR? Yeah. So International Bird Rescue is kind of unique in a way because we specialize in aquatic birds. Mm -hmm. So we work with I mean, any kind of aquatic bird, you name it, we work with it. Coots, mm -hmm. rails, ducks, geese, pelicans, gulls, cormorants, herons, egrets. That's our specialty. 
Um, so a lot of other centers actually transfer their aquatic birds to us for continued care. Um, so that's something that makes us a little different from other centers. Yeah. What kind of ailments do you typically see that aquatic birds are, are getting into that you have to deal with? Yeah. So it kind of depends on the time of year. Like right. I mentioned, during the summer, we get a lot of orphaned and abandoned babies, mm-hmm. um, typically ducklings, goslings, herons, and egrets. But we can end up with baby grebes, baby mergansers, um, juvenile cormorants. You know, there's a lot of birds that we can end up with. A lot of those birds just don't have a safe place to grow. Mm-hmm. They Their habitat is not a safe place for them to be. Yeah, so, birds are not always very good at picking a a good place to build a nest. <laughs> like they'll put it in a, you know, in a place where their their babies are are likely to get injured or the parent birds will get injured as well, it seems like. Right. Or there's a place where those birds have been raising chicks for millennia and now that humans have developed that land it looks really different than how it used to. Um, so herons and egrets, for example, nest in really big rookeries and specifically the Bay area, there used to be a lot of undeveloped marshes and Mm -hmm. wetlands. And so when those birds were ready to start fledging, they could essentially just fall to the mud below with no repercussions. But now that we've built cities and there's a lot more urban land everywhere, those birds fall out of their trees onto concrete, which is obviously very traumatic for them and they can end up with fractures. Um, So that's one of the common problems that we see during the summer is just orphaned birds or orphaned birds that have injuries because they've fallen or been caught by cats or anything like that. Right. Um, And then during the winter, we end up with a lot more adult birds in care um, who can be injured with all kinds of different problems. Right. Um, I just did two intake exams yesterday on two gulls that had fishing hook and line injuries. Oh yeah. I know. I've, every time I go to the, every time I go to the beach to go bird watching, it seems like you see yeah. stuff like that, especially around public piers and whatnot. Yes. Yeah. Once you yeah. start paying attention to the yeah. wild birds, you start noticing, Oh, that one only has one foot or <laughs> right. Or it's, it's, it's missing like bottom part of its bill or something like right. that. Yeah. Yeah. And birds are tough. They can live through a lot of it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we end up with a lot of birds with fishing hook and line injuries. We end up with birds that are contaminated either with petroleum or other substances. Mm-hmm. Um, birds can get hit by cars or fly into buildings. They can fly into power lines. They can get you know burnt by fires. Um, there's really a lot of problems that they can face. Yeah. What is sort of the the intake? procedure for birds at at IBR. Imagine it depends a lot on the, certainly a a triage that sort of happens first thing, and then you kind of go from there. Yes. Yeah. So like I said, we, since we specialize in aquatic birds, a lot of centers will send their aquatic birds to us. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's relatively common that we can get a transfer of, you know, eight to 10 to 15 birds all at once. Um, which is very different from getting just one bird from a member of the public. So the process with any bird is to first check and see what condition the bird is in. If they look pretty stable, our preference is to give the bird a little bit of time to rest because it's incredibly stressful for them to be transported to our center. Um, It's very stressful to be put in a box and then put in a car (laughs) if you've never been put in a box or put in a car before. Right, yeah. And birds are high strung, just generally speaking. Yes. 
Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, but if a bird is in really critical condition, maybe that means that we need to pick it up right away and do an exam right away. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of the first triage. Can this bird wait a little bit or does it need to be looked at immediately? Um, then when we're ready to actually do the exam, once the bird has had some time to calm down, every bird gets a complete physical exam so that we can figure out what its problems are. Depending on its problems, it might need x-rays, it might need um, some sort of wound care, it might need some sort of fracture stabilization. So this is when we figure out what its problems are and what does it need next. Um, And then we assume that every bird on intake probably has some sort of parasite. (laughs) So every bird gets antiparasitics and every bird gets fluids and is moved to an enclosure um, where we can evaluate, uh, is it eating? Does it need nutritional support? Mm -hmm. And kind of continue from there. Yeah. What kind of enclosures do you have? What do those uh, entail? I suppose it's different for, for each bird's need, but generally speaking. It is very different depending on each bird's need. So you can imagine that the enclosure that a pelican needs is very different from the enclosure that a grebe needs. Right. So we have a lot of, um, we have a wide variety of enclosures that we use depending on what the bird's anatomy is and what its needs are. Um, so specifically, uh, pelagic birds or pool birds, mm-hmm. uh, species like loons, grebes, murres, fulmars, um, those are birds where our, one of our primary concerns is getting them waterproof so that mm-hmm. they can live out in a pool full time because those are birds that are not adapted to being indoors. They are not adapted to being on hard surfaces. Yeah. Um, so our first priority is to get them out into the pool and waterproof as quickly as possible. But until they're waterproof, they live in something that we call a pelagic box or a drying pen, which is a, um, the frame is made out of PVC. It's essentially like a three dimensional rectangular frame And then there is um, soft sides around Mm -hmm. the sides of the enclosure so that if the bird flies or tries to fly or tries to flap its wings, it's not hitting its feathers against any hard surfaces. They're all soft. And then there's netting on the bottom. So when the birds defecate, their feces just falls straight through and they're not contaminating their feathers. Yeah. So when you say that a bird needs to be waterproof, what do you mean Mm -hmm. by that? This is one of my favorite things. I'm so <laughs> glad you asked that. Okay. So this is a long, complicated topic, and you can cut love me it. off this whenever. This is perfect, you... perfect okay. podcast fodder. Okay. Long and complicated. We love it here. Yeah. Perfect. Okay. <laughs> so, you know, I will say I've only been doing this for two years. My supervisors have been doing it for 10, 15 years, so I won't pretend to be the expert. But here's my understanding. Yeah. Um. Because we work with aquatic birds, those are birds that live in environments with water. So they do need to be waterproof because if they are not waterproof, what that means is the water can penetrate the outer layer of feathers and potentially the inner layer of feathers and get to the bird's skin. And if they're getting wet to their skin, they can get cold. And a cold bird is not going to feel good, is not going to eat, is not going to drink, is not going to preen. Cold cold bird is likely a dead bird. Exactly. A cold bird is likely a dead bird. Yeah. So our birds have to be waterproof. Um, 
And there's a lot of different factors that go into waterproofing. So the first thing that a lot of birders think of is the uropygial gland. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people think of this gland as the end all and be all of waterproofing. Essentially what it is, is it's this gland at the base of the bird's tail um, that secretes kind of like a conditioning oil. And if you watch a bird preening, whether it's a domestic bird or a wild bird, you'll see them kind of reach around with their bill and rub at or nip at the base of the tail and then preen through their feathers. And they're essentially just preening this kind of conditioning oil through the feathers. Yeah, like a person putting conditioner in their hair. Exactly, yeah. yeah. But that's only one of a few factors. The feathers also have to be clean. So if the bird is contaminated with petroleum or vegetable oil or algae or some other sort of contaminant, that prevents the feathers from being able to actually form an impenetrable layer and they're still mm -hmm. going to be wet and cold. Um, so the feathers have to be clean and the birds have to preen all those feathers into order. So if you, I'm sure you, Nate, know the structure of feathers. Mm -hmm. um, but feathers basically have this central vein or ratchet where, where the um, rest of the barbs grow off. Right, yeah. And then the barbs have these barbules. Right. And the barbules all hook together to create this perfect yeah. layer it's of like, a feather. Like thousands of, of tiny zippers that are all kind of zipping together to make this the feather a, a, a plane. Exactly. So that the bird can fly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And when that feather is this perfect plane of barbs mm -hmm. and barbules, the water just sits on top in a bead. It can't yeah. absorb through. So those are three different factors that all have to be present for a bird to be waterproof. They need to be clean. They need to be preening. And the uropygial gland does help. But if a bird has a uropygial gland and is oiled and is not preening, then it's still not going to be waterproof. All three right. of those have to be present. Yeah, man, yeah. it's a lot to keep an eye on when you're when you bring a bird in. Yes, yeah. So a lot of people imagine, I mean, people don't know exactly what happens to a bird when it's contaminated. And I feel really blessed that I get to do this work because I get to see how it works. A lot of people think that you get a bird, it's got oil on it, you wash the oil off, you put it back out in the wild. But it's actually this very long process we have to make sure the birds are stable before we wash them. So typically yeah. a bird is going to come into care contaminated and not get washed for at least two days mm -hmm. so that we can get fluids and nutrition on board. Yeah. Then they're going to get washed. But then the birds have to do the hard work of preening. So yeah. we wash a bird. They're not immediately waterproof. It can take a few more days before the bird organizes all its right. stuff and gets everything perfect. Yeah. And, you know, pelagic birds like Mers and, and Fulmars, they have so many feathers, too, because, yeah. you know, the conditions on the open ocean can be yes. extremely fluid. I mean, they can go from in the water frequently in the Pacific coast, especially it's very cold. Yeah. So like you have to be yes. on point. I mean, you really have to have everything in a line, so to speak. Like yes. literally the feathers in a line, yes. like they have to be right. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of work that goes into it. There's a lot of stabilization before anything even happens. And then there's the conditioning, which can take, like I said, you know, a few days a week. It really right. depends. Yeah. 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 So, so as a rehabber, you sort of get this hands-on perspective of, I don't know, for lack of a better word, sort of the personalities of different species. Like, mm. What are some of the more interesting birds that you've worked with? Right. So one of the tricky things about rehab is no matter why a bird is in care, whether they're contaminated or whether they're, 
you know, they've got a fishing hook or fishing line injury, or they were hit by a car, whatever the reason, that's a wild bird that is in care with humans, Mm -hmm. which is an incredibly unnatural scenario for the bird to be in. So every one of our birds is under stress the entire time that they're in care because this is just completely unnatural. So we do everything that we can to minimize their stress. Every time that we handle a bird, that's in the forefront of our minds is to minimize stress. Um, But the truth is that those birds do not want to be in care. And just like us, you know, we want them to be back out in the wild. They want to be back out in the wild too. Mm -hmm. So a lot of their behavior can be um, impacted by the fact that they're really stressed. Um, but there's definitely some interesting behaviors that we get to see and care. Um, right now we have a not large number, but a larger number of Northern fulmars than we normally mm-hmm. do. Um, I would say we have about 15 in care at the moment, which is nothing crazy. There's definitely been lots more fulmars in care at one yeah. time. Um, but typically we only have one or two in care at a time. So we get to see their behavior um, a little bit more up close when there's a few more of them. And one of the things that sometimes alarms people is when fulmars are bathing, they keep both wings just straight out to either side for the entire (sighs) duration of the bathing process. So people will run in and say, you want it, you want it, the fulmars, one of them, it's sinking, it's sinking, it can't swim, its wings are out of the water, and I'll go out and look at it, and the fulmar is just happily bathing, but they right. do this super weird thing with their wings that can be um, a little unnerving, but yeah. that's just fulmars. That's funny. Yeah, you know, no, I've my experience with fulmars has been frequently off the back of a boat, you know, right. in like the Gulf Stream, and um, yeah, they they are funny birds. Like they're much smaller right. than you imagine them to be, for right. starters. Yeah, and um, like they will just like come barreling up the back of a boat right. to get chum with right. like no care in the world. They are they are pretty interesting and funny birds. They are very interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. and the funny thing is, I have never seen a northern fulmar in the wild. Hmm. There's plenty of birds that I have worked with as a rehabilitator that I haven't seen in the wild. Huh, that's and I've often thought about keeping a list of birds that I've worked yeah, with right. through rehab. Yeah. But um, when I'm at the center, when I'm working at International Bird Rescue, my focus is on the birds. And I usually don't think about the list until I get home. And then I'm like, right, eh, right. whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so what do you find the most satisfying about working and rehabbing these birds? You know, I think there's a lot that I find satisfying. Obviously, sending a bird off to release is incredibly satisfying. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are so many moments every single day that are rewarding. Um, and I would say one of my favorite things is training others, whether it's staff or volunteers, in how to appropriately care for the birds. I find it really satisfying to watch someone learn how to safely catch a gull or how to safely handle a pelican or, you know, maybe how to safely administer medication to one of our grebes. I really love being able to pass on that knowledge and to help people feel empowered and to watch people's eyes light up when they Mm -hmm. learn how to do it too. And, um, you know, of course it's really um, rewarding to do those kinds of bird care things. But also in the back of my mind, I'm always thinking, okay, you know, when we get busy, 
I want as many people on my team who are skilled as possible so that when we have 30 birds that we still have to pick up, I can say, okay, you go pick this bird up, go catch it. And they feel empowered to catch the bird and handle the bird Mm -hmm. and bring it to me. So I find that really satisfying, even though it's kind of adjacent to the bird care. It's more about people. Right. You know, it feels to me that bird conservation and bird rehabilitation are sort of two sides of the same coin that there is sort of a, you know, maybe a little tension between them because, you know, rehab is about individuals and conservation is frequently sort of about a much bigger picture and and sometimes even is willing to sacrifice the individual for the sake of of populations. Uh, How do you sort of resolve that tension and how do you think that they sort of support each other? Right. So one thing I'll say is, you know, this is a topic that everyone has their own opinion on. Mm -hmm. And you know, what I'm about to say is entirely my opinion. And if you sure. ask a different rehabilitator, it's possible that they will have a completely different <laughs> yeah, answer. Almost certainly. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So just think of this as the opinion of Ioana Seritan. <laughs> sure. Got it. <laughs> um, my opinion is when we are rehabilitating birds, a lot of times they're coming into care because of problems that either are caused by or worsened by humans. Mm-hmm. Even if a bird is coming to us because it's starving and it doesn't seem like there's direct human impact, there's always indirect human impact. If a loon is starving on a beach, it's possible that that loon had trouble finding the food that it normally eats because maybe that food is being fished by humans. Or increasingly, we're starting to see ocean temperatures changing Uh, because of climate change, and maybe the food sources that our birds have depended on for a really long time are going to be in a different place, or maybe they'll be in that place earlier than normal or later than normal. So even when birds have just kind of like vague problems, like, well, they're starving. In Mm -hmm. my mind, that's still something that's impacted by humans. Um, So there's kind of two two things that I get out of rehabilitating that bird. First of all, I can help rehabilitate and release a bird that was impacted by humans, and now we can help and get it back out in the wild to continue breeding and to continue being part of the environment, um, Mm. even though it faced these problems. And we are always gathering information on these birds for education and for research, So anytime that we're getting a bird that's a particularly interesting case, like a bird with a fishing hook or fishing line injury or a bird Mm -hmm. that's contaminated, we can take pictures, we can share that information with members of the public and teach them how they can make a difference. We can help advocate for those birds and we can use the information that we have um, to encourage people to maybe, you know, vote for certain measures that will protect Mm -hmm. birds or, you know, support certain causes that will protect those birds. Yeah. Um, And also one thing that International Bird Rescue does that is a little bit unique is we have the ability to ban our birds on release. Mm -hmm. So not all wildlife rehabilitators can, but we do, which means that we get to follow our birds after release and we hopefully get to find out, okay, where did that bird go? How long did it live? Right. Maybe it lived 10 extra years, which means it had 10 extra chances to breed and Mm -hmm. to be part of that population. And part of our responsibility as banders is to then publish that information for use by others. 
Yeah. So all of the birds that we re rehabilitate and release and ban then become part of this giant scientific effort to yeah. capture what's going on with birds right now. And you can find research from International Bird Rescue and use it in other research projects to try and track what's happening with brown pelicans or what's yeah. happening with any of these other species that we work yeah. with. Uh, have you seen people take a greater interest in sort of conservation efforts because of the interaction that they have with these individual birds? Yeah, so that's a good question. Um, I would say a lot of people come to International Bird Rescue who are already passionate about birds. Yeah, sure. And then there's lots of other people who come to International Bird Rescue because they live in the area and they're looking for something to volunteer and help with. And then they fall, fall in love with birds. So there's a wide spectrum of people who volunteer and a wide spectrum of people who bring us birds. Some people are birders and other people are just, you know, regular folks trying to go to work, but they find a heron in their backyard. Right. Um, so I would definitely say that being able to have that up close um, interaction and knowledge of birds, being able to learn, oh, this pelican came to us. Um, with this problem that helps empower people because then they can say, oh, I saw this problem impact a bird right in front of my yeah. eyes. So I feel empowered to maybe, you know, support a cause or support a certain representative or support a certain law. Yeah. Yeah. You want to, thanks so much. This was, this was a lot of fun and, and really interesting. Uh, you want to is a, a wildlife rehabilitation technician at international bird rescue in uh, Northern California. Um, she's also an associate editor at birding magazine. So you can help, you know, support her work by, by reading birding online as well. Um, thank you so much, uh, for making some time for me, you and I hope that, uh, you're not, you know, you're still going into work even though COVID is, is a thing now, huh? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The birds yeah, the still birds, need us. The birds still need us. Absolutely. Well, good luck. And uh, thank you so much. Of course. Thank you for having me. Yeah, this is Dan Oberg from Lexington, Kentucky. Three cedar waxwing stories for you. First time I've ever heard or seen them was on Jekyll Island down in Georgia. I was walking one of the marsh trails and uh, I heard them, that high pitched sound looked up into the trees, and there they were. There was a bunch of them up there, and, and I could tell the reason why they were up there is there was a lot of berries, and that's what they were eating. Just a beautiful moment as I was walking down the trails there. They stayed there for a good long time, and I eventually walked on. Second time was in Owensboro at the Western Kentucky Arboretum. They've got pear trees. I believe they're pear trees that line the little road that goes into the arboretum and once again I heard them barely saw them I saw a little bit of flutter in the trees but definitely heard that high pitched sound is just a beautiful sound and then the third time was just kind of a unique experience I was walking uh, a trail near Beaver Marsh in the Cuyahoga Valley National Park there's a naturalist set up out there and uh, she pointed me to the direction where a cedar waxwing nest was placed. It wasn't exactly easy to find, but I walked down the trail and spied up into the trees, and there it was. I could see the, the mother uh, feeding its babies berries, and I would not have been able to see this great sight if it wasn't for having a good pair of binoculars. Just very cool. Every once in a while, the mom would fly out and go get some more berries and come back. It was just a, a joyful experience. 
There's my cedar waxwing stories for you. Thanks so much, Dan. If you would like to share your Cedar Waxwing stories with listeners, just record them on the Voice Recorder app on your smartphone and send them to podcast at aba.org. For best quality audio, make sure that you're in a quiet place and hold the mic pretty close to your mouth. I'd suggest writing your words down first. That's, That's what I do. That certainly makes it more likely that we'll be able to use it. Once again, you can send those to podcast at aba.org. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. We are a membership organization, and as you know, the best way to support this podcast and the ABA is to become a member. You get some great magazines, you get access to discounts from our friends and sponsors, and the knowledge that you are helping to support the birding community in the U.S., Canada, and around the world, which is especially important now that we actually can't get together as a community. Learn more at aba.org slash join or check out our e-memberships at aba.org slash e-member. Special shout outs to Travis Sparks of Bodwin, Maine, Jason Hall of Limerick, Pennsylvania, Richard Hathaway of Dade City, Florida, Greg Luckert of Barrington, Rhode Island, Emlyn Mock of Esco, Minnesota, Michael Shanley of Staten Island, New York, Ty Gunter of South Bend, Indiana, Brian Vitinik of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, Paul Kilpack of Linden, Utah, Ben Dudek of San Francisco, California, and William Eccles of Dulles, Virginia, all of whom recently joined the ABA and noted the podcast as a reason. And one of you, you know who you are, described me as the Billy D. Williams of Bird Talk, which is a compliment I didn't know I needed. Executive producer of the podcast and president of the ABA is Jeffrey Gordon. He urges, while you are watching out for this coronavirus thing, please also watch out for the Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome, or MERS, which comes in a thick build and common variety, but you are going to have to go to your physician to tell them apart. Technical production is by John Lowry. He's been working from home ever since a nasty run-in with Pied-Billed Gribola. Additional help comes from Greg Neese and David Hartley. One's from Chicago, one is in the Bay Area. They have been social distancing ever since they both saw SARS Phoebe. You can find us online at aba.org, on Facebook at facebook.com slash birders, and on Twitter at ABA. I'm going to take you deep into the rabbit hole right now. Did you know that there are 20 species of countable corvid on the ABA checklist? And if Northwestern crow is, in fact, lumped, as we talked about last time, that puts us at... You see where I'm going here, COVID-19. So if you're looking for someone to blame for this, and oh my God, I just realized that the hybrid zone is near Seattle. We are through the looking glass, people. Questions, comments, and conspiracies can come to me at podcast.aba.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Till next time.